0: This podcast is part of the Everyday Heroes Podcast Network, the network for first responders and those who support them. I'm Abby Ellsworth. I am a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. My guest today is Officer Stacey Rourke, who is with the Spokane Police Department in eastern Washington State. Officer Rourke has been with the department for nine years, but has a total of almost 30 years in law enforcement. Stacey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Good morning, Abby. We were chatting a little bit about your background, which is really interesting. Let's start with how you, when you got into law enforcement and where, what year, where you were.
1: I started my law enforcement career as a reserve officer with the city of Spokane in 1992. Later in 1998, I became a full-time officer with the Adams County Sheriff's Office, which is west of Spokane. I spent some time there. Uh, After 9-11, I felt a calling to help out more, so I was able to become an air marshal. I flew for about a year, maybe 16 months, and I came back to Adams County. And then 2013, I lateral to Spokane PD, where I've been ever since.
0: Well, since I've never talked to anyone who's a U.S. marshal, if we could just do a little digression there. And tell me what that was like. I'm not sure that most people know what air marshals actually do.
1: Well, uh, truthfully, the training was very good, but the job was very boring. <laughs> uh, a lot of time on airlines, a lot of time in airports. Uh, I mean, if we remember back to those those days, airlines were used as the weapons of the terrorists. So they had air marshals on flights and you know, some people had some activity on flights and some people didn't
0: the air marshals are generally not known to the passengers
1: no no i know that there was a lot of people that would try and figure out who the air marshals were you know i mean i think it was kind of a they called it find the fam so the federal air marshal but you yeah you kind of blended in the best you could
0: except that you got to board first as far as i know oh did you i don't know (laughs) my mem- <laughs> So I always see, if I see two men approaching and boarding before everybody else. I figure they're either military and it's a courtesy or they're air marshals.
1: It could be. <laughs> there were different. There were everybody, every team did it differently.
0: Okay. Okay. And do you also transport prisoners?
1: That wasn't our, that was U.S. Marshals. So oh, yeah, there, yeah, yeah. there's a distinct difference between the two.
0: Okay. Got it. All right. Well, that was my little education on being an air marshal and thank you for doing that after 911 having lived in new york city during 911 it was uh nice to have that kind of support from law enforcement and one of the reasons i started interviewing law enforcement after 911 i felt like it was the first time i'd seen law enforcement thank for anything ever you know and then i moved out to the area where i live now and there was a line of duty death and i saw the community rise in support of law enforcement and i thought you just you can't show your support for law enforcement only when an officer dies in the line of duty and we're seeing some of that now right we're seeing we're seeing this negative narrative on policing all these attacks on police but then when a law, an officer loses his or her life you see the support that's there how do you feel about them
1: we're pretty thankful here in the pacific northwest and eastern washington to have the support that we do have i don't go a day without somebody trying to buy coffee or just saying thank you we experienced a lot of backlash I think we have to keep in mind that that was one person did a wrong thing and an entire profession paid the price you know tragic you know but I I as a police officer did not have anything to do with that yeah that was it that was an experience all in and of itself right that year
0: so tell me what it's like policing in Spokane policing in Spokane it's a big
1: enough city that there's a lot of things going on but it's a small enough city where you see people you know every day. My current assignment is with the behavioral health unit. I've been doing that for a couple of years. Uh, I'm a I'm a negotiator uh, with the department. So we used to have 6 to 10 call outs a year. Last year we had 50 this year alone right now we're at 33. So we're we're going to surpass last year by a long shot. The de-escalation, the time, you know, that we're putting into getting that resolution has increased immensely.
0: One of the things I do want to touch on is your current role, which is the behavioral health unit. So you're talking about when you're saying call outs uh, for crisis, is it a crisis response team or crisis intervention team?
1: Yeah. For the the, uh, negotiating team, those are, those could be anywhere from uh, somebody that's suicidal on uh, one of the bridges, one of the rooftops. Uh, it could be anyone from a, a barricaded person. Uh, it could be a hostage situation. It could be, you know, a warrant call out with the SWAT team where calling out them to come out and peacefully, a peaceful resolution to the, to the situation. So that's a different, in addition to the behavioral health unit, where we respond to people in mental crisis all day long.
0: So it can be someone experiencing a mental crisis, or it can be someone who is a criminal holding someone hostage. I mean, there's a range. Yes. And so you said these call-outs have increased. Do you, to what do you attribute, why do you think that's happening?
1: I, I, I personally think that it's attributing to, there's a, I mean, we're going through a pandemic where a lot of people are just not in their right minds. Things are going on that are beyond their control and that we're de-escalating longer, we're exhausting all of those options for them to come out and be safe.
0: Well, let's talk about your current role, your unit. I did want to ask, I noted here when we talked something about a, a pilot program.
1: The pilot program was an employee with Frontier Behavioral Health. He was doing his master's in for his social work master's. And he developed a program that he would ride with law enforcement so many hours and offer services. He was in roll call and needed somebody to ride with. And I, I was interested in that. So I, I took him and I could see right from the first calls that him offering services to somebody in crisis. And one distinct remember, it was a juvenile female and her mom. Uh, they've been arguing, been having lots of calls for service there as far as uh, fights between the two of them, but just arguments, nothing physical. And at then this call, she was suicidal. And he was able to offer services, crisis line. She ended up going to the Hospital for Juveniles, PCCA, for a uh, psych evaluation because of her suicidal ideations that was the last call that we had at that house. We didn't have any more calls. And you could see right away that that was kind of the the way to go with somebody well versed in that.
0: And you saw the value of having him on calls with you way back then. Yeah, oh yeah. And what did he do that made a difference?
1: I think he made he made a difference by having the access to the services that he provided. Access to knowing the, you know, the ins and outs of getting somebody into the hospital. Uh, before, if somebody was suicidal, you would show up and you would talk to them and call the ambulance. The ambulance would take them down to whichever hospital and you would type up the, the involuntary treatment form and they were sent there. With his knowledge and his access to different services, we were able to take that person and sometimes we transported them. Maybe they didn't need to go to the hospital. Maybe they went to a diversion center that sometimes we didn't even know those were there. You know, we knew what they were cause we'd go to calls there if somebody was acting out at one of those places. But as far as like getting them in there or as a patrol officer back then, I, I didn't know how to do
0: it. And so then fast forward to where we were, the growing challenge with mental health, there seems to be an increase in people in mental health crisis. And so your behavioral health unit was formed to address that.
1: Based on the the data that Matt had collected by himself, you could kind of see the way things were going that we needed to jump on board with this Right before the pandemic is when we started our behavioral health unit. And there was two, two city officers and two county officers. And it was a, a countywide grant. that We had four clinicians. We would just respond countywide to people in crisis calls. And we would, we would go through and specifically pick out those calls. And for the grant criteria, uh, we needed to have 30 crisis contacts a month. And we were, we were getting 30 crisis contacts in probably 10 days. I don't have the specific, like how many minutes or how much time that we've taken from patrol. But I do know that our time spent on a call is two to three times that of a patrol officer. Because we don't have the call list of the, holding us back. We, we divide or we put all of our attention to that one call and make sure that that person's not going to be calling again. And the primary goal was initially was to divert people from either taking them to jail or the hospital. So those diversion centers like I talked about, we have four of them here now and we take them to those diversion centers and they're treated there. If they if it's deemed that they are too much for them to handle, then they do get transported to the hospital. You know, as far as the successes, we've had several different success stories of people that uh, we've encountered and, and got them services and got them going. And now they're living independent and not calling as much as they called.
0: Well, I guess through the mental health professional, you're able to know the follow up.
1: Yeah, through the, through them. Uh, and we do have follow up. Uh, so people that we contact, they're into the program that we have here, it's just a local database that we all have access to. So we can kind of follow their, follow how they're doing through that. And if they continue to call, then we go back. It it does make those second and third contacts a little bit easier because you've already had kind of a track record with them and, you know, Hey, you remember me? And you know, and they, and they, Oh yeah. And they, Oh yeah, I messed up or I did drugs again. I need to get help or, you know, uh, whichever they're not taking their meds or there's a, variety of different
0: reasons. And, you know, I see law enforcement get criticized for responding to persons in crisis. I see different groups insisting that police should not respond to these calls because it's triggering to the person in crisis, because police show up with guns, because police are too quick to use force. So it's a level of criticism I think is unwarranted. And I don't think that people know how many, there are quite a few departments who seem to have this co-responder model that the department is really invested in and is making work.
1: Yeah, I think there's there's two different models. There's co-deployed and co-response. Okay. Uh, we're co-deployed, so the, our clinicians ride directly with us. The co-response is law enforcement shows up and then then clinicians show up after the fact. I think both have, uh, you know, I mean, they have their pluses and their minuses. I'm sure we do take patrol with us, myself and uh, Jenny, who uh, you'll meet later in the show here, and until we make sure that the scene is safe for just the just Jenny and I to work, and once we once we make that determination, we we have them take off. Then we just go from there. You know, if they uh, need. Just regular, just services. We can have a, a team from uh, the sponsoring agency that, that Jenny's employed by. Uh, they have different teams that can make house calls or come out if it's deemed that, you know, their, their treatment, they need to be going to a stabilization and the, the stabilization places are completely voluntary. Uh, we do, you know, convince them that, yeah, this is something that's good for you. Uh, I think deep down, they all want that. But there's such a stigma with mental health. You know, if somebody had a broken leg and their femur sticking out, I mean, it's a no-brainer. They're going to go to the doctor. But there's such a stigma with mental health that uh, I've, I've relayed a story to people that I've worked with that, you know, I had cancer. I'd have let, if I would have let my cancer go, I probably wouldn't be here right now. It's the same, it's the same thing. I didn't choose that. I didn't want that, but it happened. You know, you don't choose your mental health. You don't get to, you know, I mean, it's not something that you want, but there is, there are ways to treat it and there are ways to fix it. And, you know, it's just a matter of how you do that.
0: Can I ask what you had? Uh, yeah, I
1: had uh testicular cancer in 2009. I was, gosh, not to date myself, but I was 41. So I was way out of the, yeah. way out of the numbers way. I mean, it, they, they were like, no, he just needs to happen now yeah. um so yeah i was uh that was definitely uh a scary time for you know just had no idea what you know one day you're just going to the doctor in fact i was planning on lateraling to spokane and i was going to a physical in 2009 for the wow. for the police department and cancer was found so i had to delay that until later till 2013 wow. until i could lateral transfer to make sure everything was good so yeah Yeah. it's just uh one of those times with uh kind of a gut check for you know for everybody involved my family included so Yeah. yeah
0: wow that must have been quite a shock that must have been scary well thank god they found it when they did and that you were successfully treated and to go back to the point you were making is that people will for illness like that will seek treatment where with mental health, there is a stigma. So how do you know which calls to go to? Are you relying on dispatch nine one one, or, or is it other patrols showing up saying, Hey, we think we, we need you.
1: All three. We, we, um, as soon as we get in the car, uh, we have people calling for us. Our, our designators are George units. So they they're asking the time we come on shift at eight in the morning till till six in the afternoon. I need a George unit here. This is what's going on. We'll see the call, you know, if it's somebody that we've dealt with before or if it, you know, just whichever. You know, if we're not busy, we're we're taking those calls. So we average probably seven to twelve calls a day. Kind of depends on the day. Like I said, they're very time consuming. If we get somebody into stabilization, we have to make sure that stabilization has a bed. We have to make sure that they have their meds. You know, there's a lot of different things that, for those stars to line up for them to to divert from the hospital or jail.
0: Why is it important that your clinician, Jenny, be accompanied by you, a police officer?
1: She can actively see somebody in their psychosis or in their, their mental, you know, she can she gets there right away. She can kind of see how they interact with me. She's able to interact. I I like to introduce clinician right away uh, as, as soon as things are de-escalated, as soon as there's kind of some, we have some control of the scene. I, I introduce them right away. And I think that, that that helps de-escalate and helps them, the person that's having the mental crisis. Uh, it doesn't take long for uh, Jenny to talk to them and to, to those those signs start coming up of uh, seeing and hearing things pe- other people don't see. There's a lot of questions that she, she asks.
0: Some people will argue that they think cops shouldn't go to these calls at all, that just the clinicians should go. But these calls can be very dangerous and they can turn dangerous without warning.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There are times, you know, I'll ask in conversation, would you go to this call by yourself? And Jenny would be like, no, I would not. I would not want to go to this. And we do have, so there's designated crisis responders that have people in the community that they want contacted. They call us. Uh, So there's Mm. myself, Jenny, and a DCR will go to a call and we'll have you know, I'll make sure that the, the scene is safe. And then they kind of interject themselves and talk to the person that's experiencing the, the crisis.
0: And the DCR, go ahead.
1: Yeah, DCR is a designated crisis responder. So instead of people calling 911, say uh, somebody calls about their neighbor, they'll call the crisis line and say, I'm concerned about my neighbor, this, this, and this is going on. And they'll determine from their uh, past history or what the person is relaying, whether they need law enforcement or not, or if they need two people or, you know, whichever. Uh, Two DCRs will go out to one call. Uh, Sometimes they call us, you know, sometimes they don't. But they still, there is something to be said about compliance. uh, Somebody that's cooperating uh, when law enforcement is there.
0: Mm.
1: I do know the communities. Feel that police should not be responding to those calls, but at the same time, the mental health persons—they've determined that it's not safe for them to go to, and it's not in fire's wheelhouse to go to those calls. So we're—that's what we need to go to, and all of our officers here in Spokane are trained uh, CIT officers. Everybody goes through the the forty-hour CIT. Uh, we did offer a enhanced crisis intervention training and it was an additional 80 hours where we learned motivational interviewing. Uh, We went to uh, all those stabilization places. We learned how to get people in there. We learned uh, kind of what their specialties are. We went to autistic. I go to a a local autistic uh, where kids can kind of see police officers. And so they know that there's, you know, where what's what a police officer does. And so they're not, you know, so they're not afraid basically.
0: Um, There's a lot of work going on with autism, responding to autistic.
1: Yes. Yeah. And that gave you great insight too. When uh, an autistic family is calling and they can't find their child as an ECIT officer, uh, we go and, you know, and we can, you know, just the different parameters and kind of talk the, the, you know, how to chat and just not be that presence that they're afraid they're going to get in trouble.
0: Right, so it has to be incredibly rewarding what you're doing.
1: There are days, yeah, there are days where it is rewarding. You know, there are days where it's uh, it's a long day too. Yeah. yeah, like right before this interview, I just chatted through a door with a guy for 40 minutes trying to trying to get him to come out. He's off his psych meds. He's in one of the downtown apartments. Yeah, he just is adamant. He doesn't need psychosis meds, but he's creating havoc for the entire apartment building.
0: So how did it? Oh, we had to
1: walk away. There's, I couldn't, I can't just go in his door and grab him. He's still, you know, protected inside of his apartment. So.
0: And so Jenny wasn't with you on this. Yeah, Jenny
1: was with me. Yeah, we we tried the every angle we could, trying wow. to get him to to come out and tried to just one of those times.
0: Is that how it's yeah. always been, or is this part of the new laws that passed last summer that restrict your ability to take? In, involuntarily commit? No.
1: What's not changed is You can't just go into somebody's apartment. You know they're secure with the their Fourth Amendment right. They, it's not a crime to be a mental health condition. In this instance, he he was leaving some threatening letters and uh, drawings and a lot of different things that were leading up to he's off his medication. And he told me I've been off my medication for four months. I'm fine, he said that I was the one that needed antipsychotic medicine, and you know um, but yeah you it's never it's always been that you can't just go into somebody's apartment and and get them.
0: I know you can't reveal names or specifics for privacy reasons, but are there cases that come to mind where you feel you and Jenny have made a difference and been able to help somebody?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, In fact, we just did some follow-up on a case where we had a guy call, and he said that neighbors are spraying his house with something, and it's causing him that he can't sleep. We went, and there's no evidence of any kind of things being sprayed. We kind of talked to him, and in fact, Jenny said, you know, a lot of things when somebody smells an acute smell or something, then uh, it could be a neurological like a brain tumor or something of that sense. So uh, we we had met with this gentleman and kind of talked to him a little bit, and got a game plan. And we just kind of nonchalantly mentioned to him, you know, probably be a good idea to get your doctor, you know, just to make sure this isn't causing you to do something. So uh, then the neighbors started calling that he was spraying soap on their house because he felt that they were spraying his house. So he was trying to clean their house. Um, they called again. He was on his roof, dressed in a black snowsuit with a video camera, trying to catch him. You know, I mean, he's obviously he's an older guy and he's he's creating a danger for himself, falling off his roof. Or So, again, we we talked to him and he said, I met with my doctor. Well, he had a, a telehealth, you know, oh. they did it over online. So uh, we actually he told me my doctor is so-and-so and we went and met with the doctor and you know we didn't want any of his information but we told them what we suspected well jenny did jenny suspected this this and this and they said okay and he had he did have another telehealth appointment they had a telehealth appointment they changed it to an in-person appointment and we haven't heard anything back that he's the neighbors aren't saying anything's going on or Hopefully it was a successful appointment, then nothing is seriously medically wrong with him. But that was just a one recent success.
0: Would you check back with someone like that or not?
1: You know, we we kind of talked about that. I don't want to go and have him tell me, you know, maybe he is on medications and doesn't want to face that. Oh, here come the cops again with the clinician type thing. So we're still discussing it. But
0: So it seems like behavioral health, mental health is an issue. Is it getting worse? Is it because of an increase in the, well, I think you said earlier COVID and people reacting to that, but increasing homeless population. You said that a lot of your people are not homeless.
1: Yeah, we, uh, you know, when I first took this position as behavioral health, I was a downtown neighborhood resource officer and working downtown was all day dealing with the homeless. My thought was we're going to be, I'll still continue that it's far from it. Uh, We very rarely, maybe I would say 5% of our calls are with somebody experiencing homelessness.
0: I'd love to know what drew you to law enforcement. What made you decide to become a police officer?
1: I've had other people ask me that. And I don't want to say like it was a calling, but I haven't, I can't really think of anything else that I wanted to do. As a kid, I I was drawn to it. I, I just don't remember. Uh, I had a couple of friends that that's what we're going to do, right? And I'm the only one that was able to, to you know, follow through and did what I wanted to do. So
0: when you joined, did you, was it what you thought it would be? And did you find it rewarding? And-
1: yes, I found it rewarding. It wasn't what I thought it would be, but I still found it was rewarding. Uh, I was told, don't do it. It's bad. You know, I mean, things have changed. Talking to uh, former police officers. In fact, my uh, uh, stepdad was retiring the year that I started in 92. And he said, don't do it. You know, I mean, the, they changed Miranda and they changed all these things, you know, from being a uh, a cop in his time till this time. And I thought, you know what? If people ask me, I don't tell them because you know, we adapt and overcome. and. Uh, It's been a rewarding career for me and, you know, I'm closer to the end than I am the beginning. So uh, if people ask me, I tell them, you know, it's, it's what you make of it. So definitely.
0: What do you mean by adapt and overcome?
1: Uh, You know, like Miranda, they said that we'll never be able to arrest somebody Well, we still arrest people. We still get confessions. We still, you know, I mean, just being able to, to talk to somebody without any, reper- any repercussions that doesn't, you know, now there's Miranda rights and people have rights, you know? So they said, once you read those, nobody's going to talk to you. And
0: Oh, okay. Oh, they were they instituting. Oh, okay. Yeah. They instituted oh. it.
1: And that's when he said, uh, policing's changed. You can't do any of this stuff. <laughs> Little did you know. Did I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, there's, we, we, we figure out ways to, you know, I mean, as the criminals figure out ways to, to get through stuff, the law enforcement figure out figures out ways to do things.
0: Well and you know, there is this assumption that police don't want to change and that they which is not true. I can't think of a profession that works harder to do what's asked of them. To, and if and people want to see that, don't want to see that.
1: I think there's there's things that the police want to change too. There's a lot of different things that we would like to see changed. Like. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, we get we get calls of so and so can't control their five year old. Uh. A five year old? I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> what are we going to do with a five year old? What you, you know? I mean, people nine one one's a crutch, and they call for all kinds of different things. Uh, there's some personal responsibility that we all need to take in this life. Yeah. And when we when we're able to. Pawed it off like it's not my fault. Well, some of it is your fault. You need to own it. You know, uh, we're being asked to own it. We're being asked to change. So like everybody has a part in it.
0: And I, I did ask you if it was what you thought it would be. And you said no. So how did it differ?
1: Well, I mean, it, you grow up watching TV and seeing Miami Vice and Hill Street Blues and those type of shows, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, and then you get to do it. It's like, wait a minute, this isn't, you know, this isn't what I thought it was, you know, yeah. but it's still rewarding. It's still, there's still things that, uh, is to tell everybody, you know, it's kind of one of those professions that everybody introduces you by profession, you know, yeah. uh, you go through, Oh, this is my friend. He's a cop. Right. You know, I, I've never understood that. Or you walk into, uh, anywhere and there's always somebody I didn't do it. You know, I mean, <laughs> everybody's trying to be your, you know, joke around and have fun, but yeah, you're introduced by your profession. Yeah. It's kind of a different, you know, I have friends outside of law enforcement and I don't introduce them by, you know, this is Jay, a doctor, you know, I yeah. mean, that's just the way it goes.
0: I just had this conversation with an officer in New Zealand who said the same thing. He's like, I'm, I, they always introduce me as James, the cop.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Maybe it's because everybody can relate, like everyone has some relationship with police, you know. Mine is good, uh, yeah, but, and I would be curious, you know, other, I don't know.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah it's it's always, I just never understood why, why we, why you be introduced to me as a, you know, <laughs> as this profession, but
0: yeah. Some a lot of officers can remember certain incidents, certain people in their careers that kind of stick with them, either because it was tough or because it was good. Are there any one people you remember, incidents you remember?
1: Uh, tough incidents, either, yeah, tough
0: or rewarding, both.
1: (laughs) Um, you know, it's kind of funny, you always remember as a negotiator or as a person that they always ask you, How many, you know, how many people have you talked off the bridge or? You know, and it's kind of like, I have no idea. And in talking with people, it's, you have to remember those wins. I've not had, knock on wood, anybody jump in front of me. Unfortunately, I've had people take their lives in front of me. But when the question comes up about how many people have you talked off the bridge, my pat answer would be, I have no idea, you know. And since now in, uh, you know, talking with talking with different people. No, you gotta remember those wins. So uh now I've gone back and try to remember how many people, you know, how many people have you talked off the bridge and and what was successful and what what did you think wasn't successful and you know, so it, it, it yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of wins. There's definitely more wins than losses. But for whatever reason, the losses don't like to lose, you know? Yeah. Don't
0: and when someone has taken their life in front of you, I assume that's with a weapon, the gun, yeah,
1: yeah, no, it wasn't a gun, it was both times knives, yeah, unfortunately, yeah, both of them uh one almost decapitated himself, and the other went straight through with a big hunting knife through his carotid and pulled it out, and then did the other side, yeah, so it wasn't it wasn't guns it was it was wow. knives and a sword both times.
0: That must be very traumatic for you
1: yeah it is I mean it uh, there's you know I mean there's a lot of things that you know and and that's one thing that's from back in the day until now that's changed which is a definite plus for our profession is it's okay to express that you're you know hey that shook me or that did this you know uh, before there was a machismo just deal with it and as we're seeing, more cops are taking their own lives than uh, than criminals are taking because of trying to trying to be that that uh, that macho you know this is a, I'm not going to talk about my feelings or I'm not going to talk about how that affected me. You know, now we now we talk about it and now you know and that's one of my roles on this department is a peer support, you know mm. peer support. And talking with people and saying, "Hey, yeah, I've been there. I, I know what you're going through. This is what I felt too. It's okay, you know. Making sure that yeah, it's okay to talk to a therapist. You know, it, there's nothing nothing wrong with it. Post traumatic stress is an injury. Uh, you know, your brain gets injured as you experience that. It's funny. I was I was talking with my dad, and when he was a younger guy, he was deciding. You know, he kind of wanted a job." that would be sustainable. So he thought a mortician would be, you know, that would be the job for me. So he went and talked to a mortician and the mortician said, yeah, uh, the next death that I have, I'll call you and you can you know, come out and kind of see what we do. Well, it was a car accident. And my dad said, I've never been able to not see what I saw at one time because I've never seen another one. And he's like, how many, how many bodies have you seen? I said, I have no idea. I mean, there's there's a lot, uh, you know. I mean, from just a lot of experiences of people of death, and so now that's why we talk to therapists. That's why we, you know, we have days off. That's why we recognize those those signs when I can't do this anymore. I need I need some help. So Spokane, we have a really good peer, a really good peer team. We have people reach out, and or we reach out to them.
0: Yeah, a healthy officer is a good officer.
1: True, yeah.
0: That's tough. I mean, I yeah. I remember when I first started interviewing officers 12, 12 years ago, two of the first stories I heard, a sergeant and an officer who had responded to the same call 30 years prior of a family of four murdered in their home, butchered. And these two men were recounting that seen like it had happened yesterday and Mm -hmm. both cried. I mean, it was just, and I would, I would hear these stories and I would come home and I would be upset. And I'd say to my husband, you know, they're just telling me what happened and I can't shake it. They lived this. They had to see this, you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't think people think about what police officers have to go through.
1: Well, that, yeah, that's part of what, uh, when you asked me, was it everything you thought it would be? And I did not see any of that on any of those TV shows that I saw. Oh. You know, that part of the, you know, I think, I think people that live in this city in Spokane would be shocked at some of the stuff that their police officers see and do on a daily basis. They would be absolutely shocked. Uh, they think this is, you know, I mean, everything's going good here, but there's, there's an underbelly and there's a lot of things going on that people have no idea about.
0: Like what? Oh, just like
1: i am said, people taking their lives in front of, of officers, just the death and destruction, uh, people, uh, suicide scenes, children being harmed. You know, I mean, there's just, there's just, I mean, normal crime that people are experiencing, a lot of people don't experience, you know? So
0: yeah.
1: I think it's, uh, you only deal with the police officers only deal with 10% of the population, you know, I mean, that's, <laughs> there's a lot going on in that 10%.
0: Wow. So in the two incidents you recounted, if you don't if you mind talking about it, how did you, how did those calls come out? Suicide. Uh,
1: yeah, they are both suicidal males and, uh, the first one I was the first one on scene started talking just trying to get some kind of common ground with that person and there was nothing having it you know I just wasn't having it the second one I was called as a negotiator because they were they were talking with this person for close to an hour by the time I got there rather than just jump in I was helping the person that had established a rapport I was talking they were talking back and forth and I was kind of giving him, you know, trying to help him just kind of work through things and and uh the roadblocks the guy was putting up, we were working through those. And I really thought, hey, we're getting somewhere with this guy. And then he just took his life.
0: Ugh. Wow. I, I just can't imagine what that's like. But at least you tried, you know?
1: Yeah, we uh, you know, I mean, and everything now is on body camera, so mm. If somebody wants to see what was said, what was done, you know, I mean, there's always going to be, I would have said this or I would have said that. that yeah, that's good to know now, you know. <laughs> you know, I mean, to having that, that 2020 vision at the end of a scene is fantastic and and we learn a lot from scene videos. Unfortunately, you know, if an officer dies in the line of duty, we we see that now. We you know, we see that we can see what they did. We can kind of, not necessarily second guess, but maybe try to build on skills so that doesn't happen to somebody else.
0: To what do you, you had mentioned suicide among law enforcement. It seems like it's increasing. Is it the negative narrative on law enforcement, the way law enforcement is being treated? Or is it just a combination of? I think com- it's a
1: combination of everything that they're experiencing that, and they're they're experiencing that there's it's hopeless. That I just can't. Uh, as many suicide calls that I go on, I just can't. You know, a lot of people say it as a cry for help, but the ones that complete suicide is is what is going on in their life that is. You know, that would force that. It's hard to say what you know what is going on uh, in each individual person's life. Yeah. I, I don't. I, I mean, I guess the short answer to your question, I don't know. You know, I mean,
0: yeah,
1: yeah they're not they're not around for us to ask now.
0: Right. I yeah, did a whole so. episode on suicide in law enforcement with Blue Help, the national organization. Oh, yeah. And what's sad is that those officers are not considered line of duty deaths. They don't get their pension. They don't get the memorials. their 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 health care is cut off the next yeah. day. I guess I already asked you, let me ask you again, <laughs> what the rewards have been, what keeps you going?
1: Uh, you know the the story that I told you that uh, where the guy was experiencing uh, the smells and those different things, that's that's a reward that, you know, like I said, I, I don't know what's going on in his life now, but he's not calling the police. he's not bothering his neighbors. Uh, so whatever happened. He's stopped. He may start up again. There's a lot of those rewards. There's success in, in reaching out to people. And been several times where we have established contact and rapport with people that other officers have encountered them. And their whole attitude has changed towards law enforcement because of the time that we've spent with them and uh, established that rapport.
0: That's great. That's a that's a great outcome. Yeah. Because people need to understand law enforcement better. You know, you said there are things that if people understood what you see, people would not believe what police officers see. And, you know, the the other thing is that people don't seem to understand how much good that you do. The news is filled with incidents that are presented as having gone wrong, whether or not they have is not for me to say, but it's Mm -hmm. always, here's what the cops have done wrong. Again, there's never, there aren't stories about what the cops have done. Right. Well,
1: I think there could be, I think the narrative would change. You know, it's funny. I saw a, I don't know where this occurred, but I saw, could have been a YouTube video or TikTok something, but uh, law enforcement, two police officers were talking with uh, a developmentally delayed kid. And he, you know, he was saying, Am I in trouble? You're the police, you know, and they're they're engaging and talking to him. And it had a great outcome. No, you're not in trouble. Your sister wants to, you know, she's missing you. And no, she doesn't miss me. You know, I mean, back and forth as a, a younger adult that's developmentally delayed. And some of the comments that people, now this is how law enforcement should act. And these guys are great. And it happened to be the developmentally delayed kid was a black kid and the two officers were white and they, that was brought up in all the comments and everything. And I said, I was just telling myself, we, at the end of the day, yeah, we're introduced by our profession, but at the end of the day, we're fathers, brothers, uncles, stepdads, coaches, we're active in our churches, you know, we're, We're as active or more active than other people in society. We're we're people too. And we're just assigned a job that a lot of people say it's a calling, but a lot of responsibility comes with this job. And I think the more people see those positive stories because they're out there, it's funny because you don't, you don't toot your own horn as a cop. You know, you don't say, well, I've done this, this, and this. You know, we're all doing this. Our job is to come home safe. Some of us don't get to do that.
0: Your profession is law enforcement. Your job is to come home safe. (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're we're out doing those that video portrayed us in this great light. We're doing that every day. Right. We're we're doing that every day, all over this. I mean, all over this city. You can. I can guarantee you right now as we're talking, there's somebody interacting with somebody in a positive, but that's not going to be on the news. Only when that officer makes a mistake or that officer does something that the public gets to watch a three-second video on and make a decision on how bad that person is. Right.
0: So, and that's partly what I'm trying to do with this podcast is to shine that light on your good works because officers don't have either won't, don't want to, or don't have the opportunity to go out and say, Hey, this is what I did. So I'm, right. I'll do it for you.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. you. When you apply for different jobs within the agency and you go to that interview, you're being interviewed by your peers and you just kind of expect them to know what you do or what you did. They'll ask you what achievements like that you were asking me about some things that your achievements, Well. Only until recently, I started counting those wins. You know, uh, people need to know about that. People need to know that at the end of the day, we are just we are human too, and we've got lawns to mow, we've got laundry to fold, we got dishes to do, we got kids to take care of, we got grandkids to take care of. At the end of the day, we're no different than anybody else.
0: All right. Well, thank you for joining me. I, for having me. I appreciate you being a, your being a police officer. We need you. For a couple more years. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, you deserve to, you know, you put in your time.
1: Yeah. Time to do something else.
0: Yeah. So you guys are going to hit the streets?
1: Yeah, we'll hit the streets and get after it and go get busy.
0: Well, thanks for being here. In my next episode, we are going more in depth about Officer Rourke's work with the Behavioral Health Unit with the Spokane Police Department. Joining us will be the clinician who rides with Officer work, and that's Jenny Manden, who is a mental health professional with Frontier Behavioral Health. We'll be talking more about their work as a co-deployed team and the impact it has on their ability to respond to persons in crisis. It's the first time I've gotten to talk with someone in this role, and I'm really looking forward to it. And thanks, as always, for listening.